Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Good morning, Christ Community Church. All right, come on, that's lame. It's fall is here. All the great things that come with fall, ignoring politicians and watching football, right? This morning, we have a special speaker uh, here with us. Uh, Frank Turk, Dr. Frank Turk, has uh, come from Charlotte, and, and I'm really excited to have him here. I, I went through uh, Frank's um, CIA Academy back in 2014, where he trains people to be apologists and and got to know him then. His resume looks like something somebody made up. I mean, he was a naval aviator, then he's been a consultant, leadership and management consultant for Fortune 500 companies. He has his doctorate in Christian apologetics. He flies around the country defending the faith, writing books. And by the way, he will be signing books, if you want to buy one, right after service. And I, I wrote a blog post. You can go back and check it. I wrote a blog post several years ago. People asked me, what books do I need to have as a Christian? I said, well, first of all, you need a Bible. But other than the Bible, you need, I said, two other books. One is Tactics by a guy by the name of Greg Kokel, and the other one is I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Frank Turk and Norm Geisler. I said, those, those two books along with your Bible give everything you need to show you how to defend your faith. And so this morning we're lucky enough to have him here, and I want you to give a big Southern Ohio welcome to Dr. Frank Turk. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I got an email not long ago from a United States Marine, so I knew this man was no sissy. I was actually in the Navy for eight years, which, by the way, stands for never again volunteer yourself. <laughs> but this guy was in the Marine Corps. However, he wasn't writing me as a tough guy. He was writing me as a distraught father. He said, my daughter was the top Christian student in her high school class. She helped lead the youth group at church. She won several scholarships from Christian organizations that she could take to any college she wanted to. So she wanted to go to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill to win the campus for Christ. And it needs to be one for Christ. In fact, about a year ago, I was speaking on that campus. It's very, very liberal. I actually live in Charlotte, North Carolina. That's about three hours from where I live. Anyway, he said, I sent my daughter off to Chapel Hill, and four weeks into her first semester, I got a phone call from her. Her words devastated me. She said, Dad, I don't believe in God anymore. Don't believe in God anymore? What? He said, I got in my car. I drove four hours down to Chapel Hill that weekend. I sat down with her, and I got nowhere with her. What do you mean you don't believe in God anymore? What happened? And she said, well, we have an atheist who teaches the New Testament class. Yeah, the atheists teach the Bible classes there. And he said, we don't even know who wrote the Gospels, and the Bible has errors in it, so, Dad, I'm an atheist now. He said, is there anything I can do about this? I said, well, you could ask her a question. What question is that? This is the question I ask anybody who's not a Christian. It goes like this. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? I said, Tom, that was his name. Tom, if she hesitates at all, the problem isn't just here, the problem's here. She might not want it to be true. 
Because when you go to college, you sometimes don't want there to be a God. Why? Because you want to be God. You want to do your own thing. Maybe she's just making excuses. But it could be that she's not a Christian now because you never gave her any good evidence that it were true, that it was true. And I'd like to show you that there is very good evidence that it's true. You know, 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Now, the gentleness and respect thing is hard for me because I'm originally from New Jersey. Okay? But we're supposed to give an answer for the hope that we have. And it's actually not all that difficult to show that Christianity is true. You only need to answer four questions in the affirmative to show that Christianity is true. In other words, if you ask these four questions, you'll look at those questions and you'll realize that the answer to those four questions is yes. And if the answer to those four questions is yes, then Christianity is true. What are the four questions? Here are the four questions. pretty grooving music, isn't it? Yeah. That is actually from our TV show, which is on every Wednesday night. It's on DirecTV channel 378. If you don't have DirecTV, it's on Roku. Do you guys know about Roku? It's kind of like a box you plug into your TV and you get all these different stations. It's NRB TV for National Religious Broadcasters at those times. It's also on this new thing you may have heard of. It's called the Internet. Have you heard of the Internet? Well, if you go to our website, crossexamine.org, at those times, you can watch the show streaming live. We're also on radio every Saturday morning. It's a number of stations around the country. If it's not here, uh, it is podcasted. It's, uh, it's also on our app, which I'll tell you about a little bit later. And what we do is we present evidence for Christianity, and we cross-examine ideas against it. Now, you might be asking, well, why are these the four questions? Truth, God, miracles, and the New Testament. Well, look, if there is no truth... Or if it's just true for you but not for me, or all truth is relative, then quite obviously the Bible can't be true, right? I mean, if there's no truth. Of course, if there is no truth, then any book written by an atheist can't be true either, right? We're going to deal with the truth question briefly here this morning. Second question, does God exist? You can't have a word from God if there's no God. If there's no God, you might as well throw the Bible away. I hope to show you this morning that there really is a theistic God. What's a theistic God? A spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent creator who created all things and sustains all things. I'll briefly mention three arguments for this God here this morning. The third question is, are miracles possible? Obviously, the Bible can't be true if miracles are not possible. But I hope to show you today that not only are miracles possible, but the greatest miracle in the Bible has already occurred, and we have scientific evidence for it. Then and only then can we get to the key question, is the New Testament true? The New Testament doesn't have a prayer if there's no truth, no God, or no miracles. But if truth exists, God exists, and miracles are possible, then we can see if the events of the New Testament really occurred, including... The event where Jesus predicted and accomplished his own resurrection. If Jesus really did that, then Christianity is true. Now, you might be looking at that going, wait, wait, Frank, what about the Old Testament? You believe the Old Testament's true? Well, look, if the New Testament's reliable, you get the Old Testament thrown in. 
You say, how so? Well, who's in the New Testament that can tell us the truth about the Old Testament? Jesus, right? If Jesus really is God, as the New Testament documents claim he is, now that's a big if, but if he really is God, whatever God teaches is true. Jesus taught the entire Old Testament is the word of God. So if the New Testament's just reliable, you get the Old Testament thrown in, all right? Now, the, the book goes into a lot more detail than these four points. If you want to go further, you can. You can get the book. There's actually a 12-part DVD series on the table there that goes through everything uh, in seven hours. You can get workbooks and curriculum with it if you really want to go through this. It's what Matt was talking about when he talked about CIA. That's what we call our Cross-Examined Instructor Academy. We try and teach people how to present this information all over the country, and that DVD set can help you. There's also a new book there called Stealing from God. And ladies and gentlemen, Stealing from God is not about tithing. Okay? People are going, is this book about tithing? No. The subtitle is Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. I've noticed whenever atheists are trying to say there is no God, they're actually stealing aspects of God's reality in order to say he doesn't exist. And that's what that's about. Uh, and by the way, all the proceeds from the sale of the books and the DVDs will go to feed needy children. Mine. Okay? <laughs> Just so you know. I've got three sons, so I need some help. Actually, they're all grown now. I mentioned I was in the Navy when my oldest two sons were about to go to college. Uh, they wanted to get into some kind of program to become naval or military officers. So they said, hey, Dad, we're interested in going to the military. What should we do? I said, look, if you want to fight, go Navy. Because wherever there's a problem, we just pull our aircraft carrier right up and we take care of it. We don't have to ask for permission to use any runways or anything. We just take care of it. But if you want a nice life, go Air Force. So they went Air Force. The oldest son is an intelligence officer with the Air Force. The second son is a KC-10 pilot out in uh, California. The third son's not in the Air Force, but he's out of the house, uh, which is good. Um, but the second son is a KC-10 pilot. A KC-10 uh, refuels other planes. That's what he does primarily. He's a refueler. So what we say about Spencer is we say what Spencer does every day is he flies up to 30,000 feet, he sits around, and he passes gas. <laughs> and he gets paid for it. Every man's dream. If I got paid to pa pass gas, I'd be a multimillionaire already. Anyway, that third son, he's in Birmingham, Alabama, actually, now. And we live in Charlotte. So my wife and I have been empty nesters for about two and a half years. Do we have any empty nesters in here? Yeah. Yeah, it took us a while to get used to that. About 10 minutes. That's how long it took to change the locks. Do we have, uh, you notice how clean the house stays when the kids are out of the house? I mean, we love our kids, but they're messy. We clean the house like once every month when they were home, once every couple hours, right? Anyway, this PowerPoint presentation I'm about to show you and other materials is on this website here. If you go to crossexamine.org forward slash FF, that's for Fearless Faith, uh, and you send us an email, I'm going to send you this PowerPoint presentation in a PDF format. It's going to be actually a lot longer than what you see here. You'll also get some other materials, including some materials from Jim Wallace. Remember Jim Wallace was here last year, the cold case homicide detective? So all that, if you just go to this website and send us an email, crossexamine.org forward slash FF. But we're going to spend a little bit of time summarizing the evidence, and we're going to start here at Does Truth Exist? You guys ready to go?
We're going to go through this very quickly, so this guy's going to run out of energy. That's why he has relief, okay? Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> He's not even going to try. <laughs> All right, let's talk about does truth exist? And whenever you start talking about truth, you always have to start with Jack Nicholson. Right? Because Tom Cruise had him on the witness stand and he said to him, Colonel, I want the truth. And Nicholson said, No. No, he didn't say it that way. If he said it that way, the movie would have gone nowhere. All right? Let's try it again. Colonel, I want the truth. Much better, much better. Well, there's a lot of people that can't handle the truth. They're saying, you got your truth, I got my truth, there is no truth, all truth is relative. You've heard all these claims, right? Well, if you don't get anything outside of what we talk about here this morning, if you get this one idea down, it'll be worth your time. Here's the idea I want to communicate. If someone were to ever say to you, there is no truth, you should ask that person a question. What should the question be? Yeah, if somebody says there is no truth, say, hey... Is that true? Is it true that there is no truth? Because if it's true that there is no truth, the claim there is no truth can't be true, but it claims to be true. Did I say that right? Yeah, I know that can give you intellectual constipation if you think about it long enough. But that's because it's self-defeating. It's like saying I can't speak a word in English. If someone were to say I can't speak a word in English, what would you say to them? You just did. This is called a self-defeating statement. And self-defeating statements are everywhere in our culture. A self-defeating statement is like saying, there is no truth, or I can't speak a word in English, or my brother is an only child, or my parents had no kids that lived. These are all self-defeating statements. They can't be true. And you need to get good at identifying self-defeating statements. And what you're going to do in order to identify them is to turn the claim on itself. See if the claim meets its own standard. This claim does not meet its own standard because it's claiming it's true that there is no truth. How about if somebody says all truth is relative, what would you say? Apply the claim to itself. Say, is that a relative truth? Or if somebody says there are no absolutes, what should you say? Are you absolutely sure? Because that's an absolute truth claim. How about if somebody says you ought not judge, what should you say? This is the interactive portion of the program. <laughs> what would you say? Yeah, you would say, then why are you judging me for judging? See, Jesus didn't say, don't judge, by the way. He said, judge not what? Lest you be judged. He, tell, he tells you to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That involves making a judgment. He's simply saying, get that problem out of your life first so you can better help your brother. So that's not a command not to judge. It's a command on how to judge. In other words, don't judge hypocritically. Jesus in John 7, 24 says, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Everybody makes judgments. It'd be impossible to not make judgments. You made a hundred judgments today just getting over here. Safe choices from dangerous choices. Good from evil. We judge all the time. The question isn't whether or not you can make judgments. The question is, are your judgments true? All right? Now, I will say this about judging. Jesus did save a very stern rebuke for people who were judgmental. And who were the judgmental ones in his day? Jesus' day. The Pharisees. And who were the Pharisees? They were the religious and 
political leaders of Israel. And Jesus went after them. Are you telling me Jesus got involved in politics? Yes! He went after the political leaders of Israel. And he wasn't so nice doing it. Have you ever heard somebody say this? Oh, you know, that guy is such a saint. He's never said a bad word about anyone. Well, if that's the definition of a saint, Jesus was no saint. Just read Matthew chapter 23. You ever read Matthew, Matthew chapter 23? Jesus is talking to these political leaders and religious leaders, the Pharisees, and what does he say to them? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Oh, you look great on the outside. You're whitewashed tombs, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. You go a mile to make a convert, and then once you make them a convert, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. How will you avoid being condemned to hell? What? Sweet and gentle Jesus said this? Yes, Jesus was not Barney. Can't we all just get along, boys and girls? No! Jesus was tough. He certainly wasn't Mr. Rogers. Can you say kindness, boys and girls? I mean, look, he was kind most of the time, but he certainly didn't go around saying, this sermon brought to you by the letter E. No, Jesus was tough, and sometimes you've got to be tough. you just got to tell people directly what the issue is. By the way, I've noticed one other thing about judging recently. You ever notice that when you compliment somebody which is a judgment, nobody gets upset. Like if I were to say to Pastor Scott, Pastor Scott, you're such a wonderful pastor. Look at this beautiful church and these great people that you're shepherding. You think he's going to say, who do you think you are? Are you judging me? He's never going to say that, right? See, people don't have a problem with judging. They just have a problem with judgments they don't like. Augustine famously said, we love the truth when it enlightens us, we hate the truth when it convicts us. If you tell somebody something that's true and you don't say it in an unkind way and they get all upset, you just help convict them. For you military guys in here, you always get more flack when you're over the target. If you're saying something that's true to somebody and they're mad, they're mad because they don't want their deeds exposed. As Jesus said, men love darkness rather than light. So don't buy into this idea you can't make judgments. You're to make judgments without being judgmental. Remember, evangelism is just one beggar showing another beggar where the food is. We're all sinners and we all need a savior. But don't buy into this idea that you can't make judgments or you can't know truth or there is no truth. Of course there is. Can everybody see that this particular claim and the ones I've just spoken about shoot themselves you got that? If you got that, that's, that's all I care about today. Because if you get this down, it's going to save you a lot of time. You're not going to be duped by false philosophies and all of these things you hear in our culture which take you away from the truth. All right? Of course there's truth. The next question is, is it true that God exists? And there are three great arguments for the existence of God that we cover in the book. The first is the argument from the beginning of the universe. This is technically known as the cosmological argument. Cosmological comes from the Greek word cosmos, which means world or universe. It says that the universe had a beginning, it must have had a beginner. The second argument is the argument from design, technically known as the teleological argument. Telos is the Greek word meaning design or purpose, and it says if there's design in the universe and design in you, there must be a designer. Now these two Arguments have scientific evidence behind them. The third argument doesn't have any science behind it, yet it's the argument we've all known since we were very small children. And it's the argument from morality known as the moral argument. 
It says if there's one thing morally wrong out there, like it's wrong to torture babies for fun, then there has to be a God. Why? Because if there is no standard beyond humanity, then that's just your opinion against the baby torturer's opinion. Or if there is no God, you can't say Hitler was really wrong. Why? Because that's just your opinion against Hitler's opinion. If there is no standard beyond you and Hitler, there's no way to say someone's right and somebody's wrong because there is no standard of rightness or goodness. That standard is God's nature. So morality can only exist in an objective sense if God exists. But let's just start here at the beginning, the argument called the cosmological argument. And this is the argument that many say points back to the big... Now, some of you are going, uh, you know, Frank, uh, we're Christians in here. Uh, we don't believe in the Big Bang. You guys don't believe in the Big Bang? I believe in the Big Bang. I just know who banged it. <laughs> in fact, the evidence for the Big Bang is so good, you even have atheistic scientists admitting this. Stephen Hawking, probably the most famous atheist physicist in the world today, puts it this way. Almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Once there was no space, matter, or time, and then the entire space-time continuum we call the universe came into existence out of nothing. Now, I don't have time to get into the details as to the evidence for this, but even, it's all in the book, but even the atheists are admitting this, that space, matter, and time had a beginning out of nothing. Now, Hawking tries to come up with another explanation other than God. He fails. But if space, matter, and time had a beginning out of nothing, whatever caused space, matter, and time can't be made of space, matter, and time. In fact, let me put it this way. If the universe had a beginning, it must have had a beginner. We've got two options here. Either no one created something out of nothing, which is the atheistic view, or someone created something out of nothing, which is the theistic view. Now, which view is more reasonable, do you think? No one created something out of nothing, or someone created something out of nothing? Yes, yeah, someone, right? No one can't do anything. But someone, if someone exists, they can create something out of nothing. That person can. And that's what appears to have happened. Look, if space, matter, and time had a beginning out of nothing, whatever created space, matter, and time must transcend space, matter, and time. In other words, the cause must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful to create the universe out of nothing, personal in order to choose to create. Why? Because only persons can make choices, and a person had to make a choice to choose to create. An impersonal force can't choose to create anything. You've got to be able to choose to create. So this being that created the universe must be personal. As we're about to see here in a minute, the being must also be intelligent because the universe is designed. Now, when you think about a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent cause, who does that make you think of? That's what we mean by God. This flows directly from the evidence itself. In fact, a good question, by the way, to ask an atheist is this. If there is no God, why is there something rather than nothing at all? If there is no God, why does anything exist? The universe had a beginning, so the universe can't be the uncaused first cause. And people will say, well, who made God? You know, the answer is no one. Why? Because God is unmade. He is the uncreated creator. And if you're timeless, as God is, do you have a beginning? 
No, if you're timeless, you're outside of time. You don't have a beginning. The universe had a beginning, but the being that transcends the universe didn't. He is what Aristotle would call the unmoved mover, the uncreated creator, what the Old Testament and the New Testament would call the great I am, the being that just bees, the uncreated creator. That's where the evidence points. Now, the second argument is the argument from design, and I'm leaving a lot of detail out because we have limited time here. But not only did the universe have a beginning, it had a beginning with extreme precision. And in fact, the design argument goes back to William Paley. If you found this watch in the woods, would you think it was made by natural law? I mean, you're walking along, you, you go out in the parking lot here, and you see a diamond-studded Rolex on the ground. You pick it up, you go, I don't need to turn this in. This was made by the wind and the rain. No. You'd go there, if there's a watch, there's got to be a watchmaker. Well, the same thing is true with the universe. The universe appears to be fine-tuned. What do I mean by that? There are several factors about the universe that are just so that if you were to change any of them imperceptibly, there would be no universe. For example, the expansion rate of the universe. If it were altered by more than one part in a thousand million million, a second after the Big Bang, we wouldn't be here. From the very expansion rate of the universe, the being that created the universe is the same being that made that expansion rate just what it is. If it were any different, just slightly, there would be no universe. The gravitational force is fine-tuned to one part in 10 to the 40th power. You say, what is, what is 1 in 10 to the 40th power? What does that mean? It's one part in 1 with 40 zeros following it. You say, Frank, I can't get my head around that number. Okay, let me give you an illustration. Take a tape measure and stretch it across the entire known universe. That's a long way. Set the gravitational force at a particular inch mark on that tape measure. I realize gravity is not measured in inches, but this just gives you a scale idea in your mind. If you were to move the strength of gravity one inch in either direction, across a scale as wide as the entire known universe, we wouldn't be here. That's 1 in 10 to the 40 precision. I don't have enough faith to believe that that value is where it is by chance. Some being, the being that created the universe, fine-tuned the expansion rate is the same being that made the gravitational force just what it is so we could be here. In fact, you can say the same thing in terms of design about our solar system. Where are we in the solar system? Right there, third rock from the sun. Who said you don't learn from sitcoms? Right there. Now. If we were just a little bit closer to, or a little bit further away from the sun, we couldn't exist. A little bit closer to, we'd burn up. A little bit further away, we'd freeze. We are what scientists call the Goldilocks zone. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. It is the axial tilt, 23 and a half degrees. Change that slightly. We don't exist. Earth rotation, 24 hours. Change that slightly. We don't exist. The size and distance of the moon from us. Change that slightly, we don't exist. Uh, if Jupiter was not in its current orbit, we wouldn't be here. Why not? What does Jupiter do for us? Jupiter is a cosmic vacuum cleaner. Its gravitational force is so strong that it attracts most of the meteors and space junk to it rather than us. So if Jupiter wasn't there, we wouldn't be here. In fact, if you take a close-up look at Jupiter, you see what these purple marks are right here? These purple marks are comet fragment strikes that are bigger than the Earth. Thank 
God for Jupiter. Because if Jupiter wasn't there, we wouldn't be here. In fact, you want to see the size of Jupiter? Check this out. Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Earth. Look at poor Pluto down here. You know, Pluto recently has been demoted as a planet. I don't know about you, but I think it's size discrimination. All right, now take a look at this. You can hardly see Pluto down here. All right, now take a look at this. Here's the sun here. That's Arcturus. That's another star in our galaxy. Uh, here's the sun. Jupiter is one pixel in size on this scale. Earth is invisible. Pluto, forget about it. All right, you got Arcturus right here? Where is Arcturus now? Right here, left of the white star Regal. Right there. The sun is one pixel in size on this scale. Jupiter is invisible. Earth, Pluto, forget about them. Now, Antares here, that's in our galaxy. That's not outside our galaxy. And in fact, if the Earth was the size of a golf ball, Betelgeuse here would be five or six Empire State Buildings high. The heavens are awesome. This is just in our galaxy, not outside our galaxy. In fact, the average distance between stars in our galaxy is 30 trillion miles. All that distance is necessary for us to exist here on Earth. Now, 30 trillion miles, how far is that? Far. Take you at least two tanks of gas and a Toyota Prius <laughs> to go 30 trillion miles. I was out in the Desert Museum in Tucson, Arizona a number of years ago. And if you ever go to Tucson, outside of the city a little ways, there's a museum. And you go outside at night. And if, uh, if it's a clear night, you can see thousands of stars in the sky. So we're out there one night and the guide goes, wow, it's so clear tonight that if we look up at 9.03, we're going to see the space shuttle in orbit. I said, oh, come on. We're not going to see the space shuttle in orbit. It's only 120 feet long. It's 350 miles up. We're not going to see it. Oh, me of little faith. At 9.03, the guide goes, look! We look up in the sky about 70 degrees above the horizon. There's an object streaking out of the western desert sky relative to us about like this. I mean, it's really cooking. When it got right about here, it disappeared. I don't know whether Scotty beamed it up or what. Actually, what happened was, despite the fact that we were in total darkness, the sun was still reflecting off the space shuttle. And when it got out of the range of the sun, we couldn't see it anymore. Now, when the space shuttle was in orbit, the space shuttle was traveling at about 18,000 miles an hour. That's five miles per second. You got trouble getting to work in the morning? Take the space shuttle. You'll be five miles a second. Think about how fast that is. Well, I did a little calculation to try and figure out how long would it take us if we could get in the space shuttle and go from our star, the sun, to another star in our galaxy an average distance away, 30 trillion miles. In other words, how long would it take us to go 30 trillion miles at five miles a second? How long do you think it would take us? It would take us... 201,450 years. That means if you got in the space shuttle at the time of Christ and started at our sun 
and started to travel to another star in our galaxy an average distance away at five miles a second you'd be less than one hundredth of the way there right now and we're going to explore space no we're not we're not going anywhere in space we could hardly get out of our solar system the heavens are awesome and how many stars are out there you know how many stars are out there they estimate the number of stars that are out there are about equivalent to grains of sand on all the beaches on all the earth you see this picture here from the ground you see that little square right in the middle that's this square from the Hubble Space Telescope those are stars planets heavenly bodies now you know why the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God Psalm 103:11 says God's love to those that fear him exceeds the height of the heavens above the earth how high are the heavens above the earth stars equivalent to grains of sand on all the beaches on all the earth over 200,000 years at five miles a second between those stars just in our galaxy from our perspective infinite that's the point God is infinite and the heavens declare his glory now the third argument I wish I had more time to spend on is the moral argument but as I mentioned if there's no God there's nothing morally right or morally wrong everything's a matter of opinion including racism slavery murder rape theft it's all just a matter of opinion if there is no God you know as well as I do it's not just a matter of opinion if that's the case then God must exist because his nature is what we mean by good now from these three arguments we can see that the being that created the universe and sustains the universe is spaceless timeless immaterial powerful moral personal intelligent and a sustaining cause of everything that exists we haven't even opened the Bible yet and we have a being that looks like the God of the Bible here how about the third question are miracles possible we know that truth exists we know that God exists the question is are miracles possible and a lot of people can't believe in miracles for example how can you believe in Noah that seems like a crazy miracle that just seems out of control who, who could believe in such a fairy tale and what about a resurrection everyone I know who's dead is still dead why should I believe in such a thing and for some reason the big problem miracle in the Bible is Jonah is that a whale of a tail or a tail of a whale I mean what is the deal with Jonah how can you believe such a thing well question what is the greatest miracle in the Bible is it Noah is it Jonah a lot of Christians will say the resurrection no that's an easy miracle compared to the greatest miracle what is the greatest miracle in the Bible yes the greatest miracle in the Bible is the first verse in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth if that verse is true every other verse is at least possible right I mean if it's true that God can create the heavens and the earth out of nothing can he do whatever he wants it's not logically impossible inside the heavens and the earth of course if he can create the whole show out of nothing can he do the Noah miracle the Jonah miracle can he resurrect Jesus from the dead can he walk on water can he part the Red Sea can he do any he can do any of those things if he can create the universe out of nothing well the interesting point is we have good scientific and philosophical evidence that the first verse of the Bible is true if the first verse is true maybe these other verses are true you just can't rule it out 
Now, I just said something you might not agree with. I said God can do whatever he wants. It's not logically impossible. You might be thinking, wait, Frank, I thought God can do anything. No, there's some things God can't do. Like what? He can't do logically impossible things. Like he can't create a square circle. Doesn't exist. Can't create a married bachelor. Doesn't exist. Some guys try, but there's still, there's no married bachelor. He can't create a one-ended stick. Doesn't exist. Can't create an honest politician. I mean, there's some things that are just too hard for God. In fact, there's some things you can do that he can't do. What can he do? Lie. Change. Right? What's he going to... If he lies, he's not the standard of truth. If he changes, he's not the standard of perfection. Because any change would necessitate a move from perfection to imperfection. He can't do any of those things. If he could, he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be the standard of truth and righteousness and everything else that he's the standard of. He wouldn't be the I am. Now, there's one other point I need to make on, on miracles because I think there's some confusion related to this. Some people will say, well, I, I can't believe in miracles because I've never seen one. Well, that's a pretty silly reason not to believe in something because you believe in a lot of things you've never seen. Like what? Your mind. You've never seen your mind. You believe in it? Yeah, you're using it right now. You've never seen the laws of logic, but you're, you're using them right now. You've never seen the laws of mathematics, but they're there. You use them every day. You've never seen gravity. You say, Frank, what are you talking about? There's gravity right there. Look at that. No, no, no. You're not seeing gravity. You're seeing the effects of gravity. We don't even know what gravity is. And by the way, that's how we know God. We don't see God directly. We see him by his effects. We see a creation, we know there must be a creator. We see, or we sense a moral law, a right and wrong, we know there must be a standard out there, a moral creator. We know God by his effects. So there's a lot of things you believe in that you've never seen. You've, ne you've never seen George Washington, but you believe in him. And by the way, you ought not see a lot of miracles. Why not? Because miracles have to be rare if they're going to get our attention. If miracles were occurring all the time, they wouldn't be miracles. The only way we can identify miracles is against the backdrop of regular events that occur most of the time. If resurrections were occurring routinely, what would the resurrection of Christ mean to us? Nothing. I mean, if people were popping up from the dead routinely, the resurrection of Christ would be nothing. You go to somebody and you go, Jesus rose from the dead for your sins. And the guy goes, so what? Uncle George just rose from the dead two weeks ago. You know, now I got to give the inheritance back. So you ought not expect to see a lot of miracles. They have to be rare events. Finally, let's get to this New Testament. We know truth exists. God exists. Miracles are possible because the greatest miracles already occurred. Have the New Testament documents, or do the New Testament documents tell us the truth about what happened in New Testament times? Now, the book has 10 the top 10 reasons we know the New Testament writers told the truth, I just want to briefly mention two of them. The first is, is that they include embarrassing stories that they never would have invented. In fact, let me ask the question this way. How many people in here have ever lied to make yourself look good? If you don't have your hand up right now, you're lying to make yourself look good. And it's not working. We know you're lying. All right, how many people have ever lied to make yourself look bad? 
Now, you don't lie to make yourself look bad. You might lie to make yourself look good, but you won't lie to make yourself look bad. So the question is, why would the New Testament writers put so many embarrassing details in the text if they were inventing them? You wouldn't invent embarrassing details. That's why we call the embarrassing stories that are in the New Testament, we say, duh, they're not making this up. Let me just give you a few examples. There are many, but here's just a few. Do you know that Jesus calls Peter, the leader of the apostles, Satan? He says, get behind me, Satan. Now, do you think Mark, who wrote that down, at one point said to Peter, hey, Pete, I'm going to make this a real interesting story. I'm going to have the Lord call you Satan. What do you think Peter would have said? Have him call you Satan. <laughs> Why is he calling me Satan? Look, I'm the leader here. And then at the crucifixion, the disciples run away. This is like a Monty Python movie. Like, run away! They all run away. And who are the brave ones that don't run away? Ladies, who are the brave ones? The women. The women are the brave ones. The men run away. Now, who wrote this down? Men. Now, what man is going to invent that he was hiding for fear of the Jews why the women went down and discovered the empty tomb? Would any man in here invent that? No, I mean, if I was inventing the story, if I was there, I'd write something down, something down like this. All right, let's see. Uh, we marched right down to the tomb and overpowered that elite Roman guard. Yeah, that sounds good. Peter said, get out. <laughs> Philip, roundhouse kicked him. John said, we'll be back. Then we marched right down there on that Sunday morning, and we saw Jesus emerging from the tomb, and he congratulated us on our great faith. And then we went and comforted the trembling women. I would never say I was Mr. Sissy Pants, why the women went down and discovered the empty tomb. And oh, by the way, why would you never say that in that culture? Forget that it was embarrassing to men. A woman's testimony was not considered on par with that of a man. So if you're making up the New Testament story, you'd only have the men be the first witnesses. Yet all four Gospels say the women are the first witnesses, which is telling us what? They really were. They never would have invented this. It was embarrassing and it didn't help their case to say that they were hiding while the women were the brave ones. In fact, a lady came up to me once and she said, I know why Jesus appeared to the women first. And I said, why? And she said, because he wanted to get the story out. <laughs> I said, that is an excellent point. I had not thought of that. Because ladies, when your man comes home from work, does he say much? There could have been a nuclear explosion down at the plant. He's not going to tell you. You'll see it on the news before he, you, he tells you about it. He'll be watching the news and going, hey, hon, what the... Oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you. Yeah, we had that explosion down there. <laughs> it could be radioactive, but <laughs> he's not going to tell you. And then also, in Jesus' bloodline, there are two prostitutes in the Messiah's bloodline, Rahab and Tamar. Do you think they invented this? Do you think that Luke and, Mar or Luke and Matthew, who recorded the genealogies, at one point got together and said, you know what, I really think we need to spice up the Messiah's bloodline a little bit. Let's put a couple of prostitutes in there, Rahab, Tamar. Why would they do that? They're not inventing it. They're just telling the truth regardless of how embarrassing it is. 
There are scores of these kinds of details, not only, by the way, in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. The Bible is the ultimate no-spin zone. They're just telling you the truth, even if it's embarrassing. Uh, one last one, excruciating deaths. The New Testament writers died excruciating deaths when they could have said Jesus never had risen from the dead and saved themselves. Remember, all of the New Testament writers, with the exception of Luke, were all Jews. They had no motive to make up the resurrection story. Why? They already thought they were God's chosen people. Why are they inventing a resurrection if it never happened? They wouldn't have done it. And what did they get by saying Jesus had risen from the dead? They got excommunicated from the synagogue, then they got beaten, tortured, and killed. Why would they invent that? We're going to start a new religion. We are? Yeah. What's it going to get us? Well, first we'll get excommunicated from the synagogue, and then we'll get beaten, tortured, and killed. Well, sign me up! You know, what a great idea. Why haven't we thought of this earlier? No, it makes no sense to say that they invented it, because they paid with their lives. You might say, well, wait, Frank, wait. There are some Muslims out there that'll pay with their lives for Islam. Some, thankfully not many, but some. Doesn't that prove Islam? No, why? There's a difference between the Muslim martyrs of today and the New Testament martyrs of New Testament times. The Muslim martyrs just have faith that Islam is true. They don't have evidence. But the New Testament martyrs knew Jesus had risen from the dead with their own senses. They saw Jesus, they touched Jesus, they ate with Jesus. They verified that Jesus had risen from the dead themselves, and they went and died for it anyway. You see, many people will die for a lie they think is the truth. Nobody will die for a lie they know is a lie. And the New Testament martyrs knew it wasn't a lie because they were there. And when somebody says, oh, they invented the whole thing, what you need to say to people is this. The New Testament writers did not create the resurrection. The resurrection created the New Testament writers. There would be no New Testament if it wasn't for a resurrection. The Jews talked about a resurrection because it happened, not because they invented it. There's much more in the text, but let's sum it up. Does truth exist? The answer is yes. It's self-defeating to say it doesn't. Does God exist? Yes, there's three arguments we mentioned, and more in the book, actually, that God exists. Are miracles possible? The greatest miracle has already occurred, which is what? Creation, Genesis 1-1. If Genesis 1-1 is true, the other verses are possible. Is the New Testament true? I just gave you a couple of reasons among ten that the New Testament writers are telling the truth. So if you want to go further, again, the books and the DVDs are there. Remember, this is the website to get the PowerPoint for free. Also, we're on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Like our Facebook pages, we put out eight posts a day. Many of them are short Q&A videos from the college campus that you can share with your friends. The Facebook pages are crossexamine.org and Dr. Frank Turek. And uh, by the way, we're so into YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, we've actually combined these three into one social media platform. We call it UTwitface. Okay? <laughs> so you may want to sign up for that. Don't forget radio and TV. And by the way, the radio and the TV are both streamed on our free app. If you don't do anything else, download the free app, cross-examine, two words in the app store, cross-examine, and not only has the TV show, the radio show, it also has a quick answer section, which means, say you're having lunch with somebody and they say something that's wrong about Christianity but you're not quite sure how to answer it, you just need to take out your iPhone, 
your droid, or if you're one of the seven people in the world with a Windows phone, you can take that out too because it works on that. And you go to the quick answer section of the cross-examined app, and chances are the objection your friend has brought up, there's an answer to right in the app. So as they're talking, you can go, hey, hang on, I'm getting a text. Hey, what about this? All right, download it, it's free. Why? I don't want this happening to you, your child, or your grandchild. Because the evidence is very strong that Christianity is true. And if you go off to college and you call home and you say to mom or dad, I don't believe in God anymore, you know what? You've just adopted a new faith. Probably the faith of atheistic materialism. And there's a lot less evidence for that than there is for Christianity. Ladies and gentlemen, Matt Rawlings. Really appreciate Frank being here, and we wanted to take questions, but why, the way we did it, because we're short on time, um, we don't want to burn out our volunteers who are overloaded with kids, um, is we ask for questions via Facebook, and we're just going to time to address one, and one of the themes that kept coming up was the problem of evil, and one of the examples that kept being used was, wait a minute, you know, how can we believe in a God that does something like order the slaughter of the Canaanites in right. the Old Testament? So could you address that real quick? Yeah, I think we're actually out of time. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Actually, this question is on the app, as, as are several other questions. But let me give you a very brief answer to it. Uh, first of all, when somebody says, I can't believe in, in the Bible, and particularly if they're an atheist, they'll say, well, the God of the Old Testament is evil. The God of the Old Testament does evil things like the slaughtering of the Canaanites. I stop them right there and I say, first of all, what do you mean by evil? Because what the person is doing is they're importing a moral standard into the situation to try and judge God. The problem is if you're an atheist, there is no moral standard by which to judge God or anything else. It's just your opinion. You see, so an atheist can't say the God of the Bible is evil because according to atheism, nothing is good or evil because there is no standard outside of them. We're just molecules in motion. We're just moist robots. There is no such thing as good or bad. So what they're doing is they're stealing from God to argue against him. That's what the title of the book means. They're stealing this standard of good from God to say the God of the Bible doesn't meet that standard. Now, here's what somebody could say. Someone could say, look... I'm not an atheist, I am a theist, so I have a moral standard. I just think the God of the Bible isn't the true God. Okay, make your case there. The problem then for you is, is that you have to deal with Jesus, and the evidence shows that Jesus rose from the dead, and the evidence also shows that Jesus said the entire Old Testament is true. So it does appear that the God of the Bible is the true God. So now you're back to the question, okay, why would God kill the Canaanites? And what I say, there, there, there are two different interpretations of this. One interpretation says this was hyperbolic. In fact, Paul Copan, who teaches at Palm Beach uh, Atlantic University in Florida, has a book called Is God a Moral Monster? You probably have that book, Matt, I'm sure. Very, very influential book, where he deals with questions like this. And he points out that if you say, if you go to Deuteronomy 7, it'll say something like this. So kill everybody, the women and the children, and then it'll say, and then don't intermarry with them. And you're going, oh, wait a minute. How could you intermarry with people you just wiped out? Why would you say that after just saying wipe everybody out? Because in the ancient Near East, they would use hyperbolic language to communicate 
that this needs to be something that's done with vigor, but it doesn't literally mean wipe people out. Like you might say, the Bengals wiped out, I see, uh, I see Mr. Green over there, the Bengals wiped out the, uh, the dolphins the other night, right? You don't really mean they're dead. You just mean that you beat them soundly. And so what Paul Copan says is these were never meant to be literal commands. They were hyperbolic commands to drive these people out of the land so the, uh, the chosen people could get in the chosen land to bring the chosen Messiah to save the whole world. Okay? The other view, put forth by Clay Jones of Biola University, says no, these were literal commands to wipe everybody out. Here's my question. If Clay Jones is right, is God immoral for doing so? Here's the question. Is God immoral for killing people? When God kills somebody, does he murder them? No, we murder people, but God can't murder anyone. Why? God is the giver of life. He can take life anytime he wants. In fact, if you look at why God wanted the Canaanites out of the land, it was because for 400 years they had gotten so debauched that they were actually sacrificing their children to Molech a metal god that they would heat up and put their, their children on the arms of a searing metal idol and the baby would just shrivel up in front of them. And God stepped in and said, this has to stop and the Israelites are going to stop them. So, you know, on every college campus I go to, I hear people saying, if God was a good God, why wouldn't he stop all the evil in the world? Well, here he is stopping evil in the Old Testament and the atheists are complaining about it, right? God stepped in to stop it. If Christianity is true, then people never die, really, they just change location. They go from this life to eternity, and God can do that anytime he wants. If he wants to take you out at two years old or 82 years old, that's up to him. So God is perfectly within his rights to take people out whenever he wants. And if you look at the Old Testament, you realize that that, uh, that Old Testament period covers thousands of years, and God's judgment is going to come down over those thousands of years on several occasions, and that was a case where it did. All right. Well, once again, everybody at Christ Church, please thank Frank Turk for coming and sharing with us this morning. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. Joe, if you would come and grab him and, yeah, give him a hand. Did a great job. Great job. Joey's going to escort Frank back to a book table out here in the atrium. And so if you want to buy one of his books and have him sign it, you can do that. Just uh, please watch your time because uh, Frank's got a flight to catch this afternoon. American Airlines demands you be on time. They're never on time, but they demand you be on time or they give your seat away. So we need to get in the airport. He's also, uh, for lunchtime, he's going to be over here in the student center with some students, with the high school and college students who are here. They're gonna, he's going to have lunch with them and answer their questions before I run him off to the airport. But I am telling you, if you have never read, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist or stealing from God, you really should pick them up because they are great, great books. And just like you saw tonight, Frank does not write over your head. He, he gets you right there to present his arguments. He's a New Jersey street boy, so he knows how to do that. Folks, a couple things for we quit, and we are a little over, and I apologize for that. If you're a first-time visitor here, please stop at our first-time visitor's table and fill out a form, and, and uh, we would love to get to know you and follow up with you. Uh, be sure, if you're a guy, sign up for our men's Bible study starting next Saturday. Uh, the staff here are going to take turns teaching that study, and we are looking at something called Unashamed, some of the dudes from the Bible that God said he is not unashamed, he's not ashamed to be 
call and his men and they're his God. It's, it's going to be a really good story. We're going to look at Samson and David and all those guys who like to kick some tails. So it's going to be fun. All right, so let's go ahead and pray real quick and we'll dismiss. Please be uh, uh, generous with the less fortunate as you go. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you got Frank here. We thank you for his ministry. I pray that everyone here will take what he said to heart, that they'll download that, that app, that they'll learn more about their faith. You commanded us in First Peter to be able to defend the hope that we have, and we should all be so passionate about what you have done for us that we should all be Christian apologists everywhere. Do it gracefully, but do it everywhere. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the people who came here today. If they don't know you, we pray that they will come to know you today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go. I'm sorry you won't beat the Baptist Bob Evans this week, but hey, a little weight won't hurt you. God bless.